Sir Richard Evans studied at Jesus College and St. Anthony's College, Oxford, before going on to become a leading historian of 19th and 20th century Europe. His work focuses especially on Germany, and he is best known for his three-volume history of the Third Reich. He is also a prolific journalist and commentator, and over the past five years, he has led a project on conspiracy theories and democracy. In this episode, he discusses the book which he has written to conclude his project, as well as his earlier work and his thoughts on the future of Third Reich historiography. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I wanted to jump in by by asking you about this moment. Could you sort of dissect this moment a bit? What what does it mean, or how did how did we get here? Uh, well, of course, epidemics, pandemics have been a part of human history uh, since time immemorial. We know a bit about major epidemics of the plague, from Thucydides, the Athenian plague, or the plague of Justinian, or the Black Death, and other more recent ones. So we shouldn't be surprised that we're susceptible to a major pandemic. And I think we have become a bit overconfident and a bit complacent about our ability to deal with these things. You know, those days, cholera and typhoid and typhus and bubonic plague were, we think, uh, all to do with the backwardness, the lack of medical knowledge, the dirt and lack of hygiene of those times. But here we are in the 21st century facing another great uh, pandemic. So I think that's the first thing to say. If you look back at history, you can see the precedence for it, and we should not be surprised. Then I think there's a kind of standard dramaturgy, if you like, of uh, epidemics, which usually start with small beginnings and then start with the state trying to hush them up, as I'm afraid was the case in China. And of course, that's what happens in Albert Camus' great novel, La Peste, uh, The Plague. Uh, and then they're forced to admit it, and then they start imposing quarantine uh, and isolation regulations and trying to deal with it in that way. And that, that I think, is um, what, basically what, what has happened. And you can see in this country, we were very late in recognizing the epidemic and in taking measures to counter it. Uh, other countries like Greece, for example, or South Korea or New Zealand were very quick, uh, and they've suffered much less than, than we have. I think when the history of this epidemic comes to be written, it will be a global history. It'll have to be a global history, uh, not just because global history is now in vogue, but because only by global comparisons can we actually see what's worked and what hasn't worked and why. We'll come back to the current situation a bit later on, but um, before that, I wanted to bring into the conversation a project you've been working on um, for the past few years, which is Conspiracy and Democracy. What is this project and how did it come to be? Yes, well, for a brief period a few years ago, three or four years, uh, the Leverhulme Trust, which is, uh, say, a wonderful organisation that supports academic research of all kinds, uh, it um, ran a, a program grant, so every year they would advertise three subjects and invite applications to run large-scale programs on them. The, the, the amount of money involved for each project would be about £1.6 million. And for that, you know, you have a principal investigator, co-investigators and um, uh, postdoctoral researchers. Uh, and I... Uh, I noticed in, uh, that in 2012, they advertised three topics. Um, one was patronage, one was value, and one was conspiracy. And I'm quite interested in conspiracy theories because I'm interested in all kinds of historical falsification, to put it bluntly, uh, and where is the boundary between truth and falsehood. And I, I keep coming back to it in different different ways with short books on the subject. And so I put together an application with a PhD student I had who was working on political murder plots in 19th century Germany. And uh, uh, we got David Runciman, the political scientist, and John Norton, the internet engineer and writer of a column on the internet in the Observer. Uh, we got together and we put forward a grant and basically we rehearsed our pitch to the Leverhulme committee when we were shortlisted. We, we wrote it together, we revised it, rehearsed it twice and so we kind of got our story right whereas it seems that the other applicants, most of them we knew more about conspiracies than we did, um, they were the kind of um, 
the kind of uh, uh, social psychologists who sort of find a conspiracy theorist, stick him into an MRI scanner and see what brain, what bits of the brain light up when you say grassy knoll. Um, he, uh, they, they kind of imploded because they couldn't really, it seems, agree on what they wanted to say. So uh, we did and we got the money. So we then appointed in the end seven postdocs. And we decided to um, give them a head. We, we weren't dividing it up and telling them what to do. We just got people who are doing interesting work on conspiracy theories, everything from conspiracy theories involving the Illuminati in 18th century uh, Europe to um, the political theory of conspiracism to uh, political conspiracy theories in contemporary Argentina, uh, even... Um, the uh, uh, the idea of villagers in northeast India that the government was sending managing tigers to reduce their number and reduce their the uh, cost of uh, poor relief. So uh, and that made for fantastically interesting um, uh, discussions in our Wednesday morning seminars. It was multidisciplinary and uh, looked at conspiracy theories from all kinds of different angles. I have a website conspiracyanddemocracy.org, uh, which is sort of it's still there i mean we're not really adding to it now because it's finished a couple of years ago but it was a very interesting project and my contribution as an historian of nazi germany was to look at conspiracy theories involving or influencing or about hitler and the nazis and i finished a shortish book it's called the hitler conspiracies the third reich and the paranoid imagination that's coming out in october I wanted to ask you a bit about more specifically conspiracy and, and democracy. What is the sort of um, democracy aspect of that? Well, the question really is, are conspiracy theories threatening democracy? That's the question. And we started off by uh, wanting to be fair to conspiracists. Uh, we didn't want to be prejudiced. We um, went in with uh, really questioning frame of mind about conspiracy theories, not they come my mind up beforehand. And so we sort of beavered away in these different ways. And then along came Donald Trump. And all of a sudden, you've got a conspiracy theorist who is running the most powerful country in the world. He came into politics through the Bertha movement, as it's called, the conspiracy theory that Obama uh, was not born as an American, was not an American citizen, but people have been covering this up. So, um, uh, not true, of course, I'd say. Uh, and then that changed the whole ball game. really. Suddenly, we became much more relevant. We thought we were just sort of beavering away in a corner of the ivory tower. And then when, in 2016, all of a sudden, we were looking at a major world problem. I think there are a lot of problems uh, for uh, democracy with conspiracy theorists. They, for a start, uh, do not... Uh, recognize uh, the truth, as it were. They they invent what Trump's Trump spokesperson called alternative facts. Uh, this is a post-truth society, and if you can't uh, recognize the truth, if you can't recognize evidence, if you can't make up a rational judgment, you're you're uh, you're getting decision-making process in democracies into trouble. And on the other hand, if you have a conspiracy theorist in power, that also then either, uh, at its most mild, I think, with Trump, uh, it, it confuses people. If the government is saying one thing and scientists are saying another thing, who do you believe? Uh, but also more seriously, it can be used as a tool of uh, demagogic rule. Uh, most famously, of course, Stalin, the uh, most extreme conspiracy theorist I think has ever held power, used invented conspiracies to get rid of his opponents. Um, but it's also happened in uh, other countries in a much milder way, but still very dangerous. So Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary, who is the authoritarian leader of the country, is shutting down um, opposition to, to himself, is using conspiracy theories to try and justify this, inventing an external threat from uh, the uh, Hungarian-born philanthropist George Soros, for example, uh, to, to try and argue that uh, the country is in danger from subversion, uh, a conspiracy, worldwide conspiracy by George Soros 
in, uh, and, and therefore to curtail civil liberties. So I think there are a number of threats that come to, that are opposed to democracy by conspiracy theories. So one of the aims of the Conspiracy and Democracy Project, as you've kind of touched on, was to compare conspiracy theories or conspiracy culture, I guess, across time and place. So how, how has that worked out? Um, I think one of the interesting things that's come across is the role of communication. Um, so you can get conspiracy theories communicated by word of mouth. It certainly happened in the Rhineland in 1349 with the conspiracy theory that the Black Death was caused by Jews poisoning the wells, and that led to pogroms, uh, mass murders of Jews right along the, the, the Rhinelands, along the, uh, the towns on the river. Um, you get that in the Grand Peur, the great fear of 1789 in France, where by word of mouth, peasants in France uh, become convinced that the aristocrats are plotting to kill them, and so they go and burn down the aristocrats' castles and so on. This is you know, George Lefebvre's great study of the Great Fear of 1789. And then you get also the print media. So you get into a whole much faster uh, method of communication when you have print coming along in the late Middle Ages. Uh, and then, of course, moving to the present day, you have, uh, above all, of course, the internet, which has become a vector for conspiracy theories spread with amazing speed uh, and, and rapidity and of course introduce conspiracy theorists to each other so they, uh, they it convinces them that um, they're not alone with their ideas but one very good example of this is um, the uh, as Petergate so a conspiracy theory that did uh, originate in uh, supporters of the uh, in, in the Trump camp uh, in the election of 2016, which uh, alleged that a pizza parlor in New York had a cellar in which members of the Democratic National Committee were uh, torturing and abusing children. And this spread like wildfire across the alt-right. And a guy actually turned up at the pizza parlor with a gun, uh, threatened the, uh, the, the owner and his staff, uh, and told them to open up the cellar. And, of course, there was no seller. It was pure fiction. So uh, the, I think there's a lot of, there's a, lot of uh, a great role is played by, um, by, by communication methods. In, in that case, we had a big data analyst who was able to trace back the whole theory on the Internet to a single uh, origin. What does studying conspiracy theories tell us about our concerns as a society? Um, well, I think, you know, there, there, uh, there are two basic kinds of conspiracy theory, of course. There's a, a kind of general or generic conspiracy theory, which uh, is, anti-Semitism would be one very good example of that, that it's a worldwide phenomenon, all Jews everywhere are plotting to do bad things, as it were. Um, and there are then event conspiracy theories, so you zoom in on, say, the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, and you say it was the lone gunman, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. It, it was, in fact, a plot, uh, and then you can start identifying the plotters, uh, the CIA, the KGB, whoever it, whoever it might be. So uh, I think one of the things that tells us is at least how some groups in society or some people find it very different, difficult to imagine that big events can be caused by individual people. One example of that, which I deal with in my book, is the Reichstag fire. Now, on the 27th, 28th of February, 1933, German parliament building burnt down. And this is just a few weeks after Hitler had been uh, made appointed chancellor, head of the government, the coalition government. He did not have supreme power at this stage, but as a result of the Reichstag fire, he and his government declared that there was a communist plot to burn down the Reichstag. He arrested leading communists. He got the president to suspend civil liberties, and that was the beginning of the of the dictatorship. Now, uh, that was a completely phony. It was such a phony um, charge that even the Nazi-influenced or dominated uh, national, the, the Reich court, tried the communists who were 
allegedly responsible had to acquit them for lack of evidence. And only one guy, a Dutchman called Marinus van der Lubbe, was, uh, was convicted. But then the communists turned around and said, no, it's a Nazi plot. They couldn't believe that Marinus van der Lubbe had caused it on his own. And there's another, there's another quality of, or feature of conspiracy theories that the qui bono argument, whoever benefits from an event must have caused it. So the Nazis clearly benefited from the burning down of the Reichstag, so they must have caused it. And ever since then, up to the present day, there have been books, articles, uh, persistent attempts to show that the Nazis actually began the Reichstag fire. There is actually no evidence at all for this, uh, but that hasn't stopped people, broadly speaking, on the left from arguing that Marinus van der Lubbe was a tool of the Nazis. With that in mind, could you talk a bit more about sort of the effects of, uh, I guess, conspiracy theories on, on people's relationships with history? How does it kind of affect the way we read history or the way we write history? Um, I, I think well, <laughs> that's a very difficult question. I think that, that uh, there are serious historians and serious history books that do uh, engage in conspiracy theories. Uh, and I think the Reichstag fire is one example of that. Um, that's a, a theory that has, the theory that was started by the Nazis, has come into the, the mainstream. Um, another one, uh, which I deal with in the book, is the flight of Rudolf Hess. So now in the spring of 19, uh, 1941, the deputy leader of the Nazi party, Rudolf Hess, got on a plane and flew to Scotland on his own, landed and made a peace offer to the British, which Churchill uh, turned down. Now that has uh, the, the, uh, there is no evidence that anybody apart from Hess and of course the you know the aircraft mechanics and so on, but they didn't know where it was going, uh, was involved. But there's a persistent uh, strain of writing, including some by serious professional historians, that has argued that he was sent by Hitler uh, and uh, that it was all part of a plot, or it was part of a plot by MI6. Uh, to lure Hess to Britain, uh, or, or there was a peace party in Britain which uh, arranged for him to come. None of that, it's not evidence for that. But it's, um, I think it shows that conspiracy theories can get into the mainstream. But there's a whole world of what I call communities of alternative knowledge out there as well. So, uh, Holocaust deniers, uh, um, ufologists, people who believe in aliens are constantly. Coming to the earth, uh, and, and and many others who uh, who are not part of the mainstream. And I think what has happened recently in recent years is that largely because of the internet, that the ability of alternative knowledge to come into the mainstream has has increased, and that I think is a really difficult and, and, and ultimately rather dangerous thing. So you find. There are more books appeared about the uh, about Hess's flight, for example, in the last 15 years than previously. Or to take another one, uh, the death of Hitler, the conspiracy theory that Hitler did not kill himself in the bunker in 1945, but escaped to Argentina with Ava Brown or Ava Hitler, she was then, in some versions with Blondie the Dog as well, and, and then had uh, children. Now, there's absolutely no evidence for this whatsoever. It's all speculation. Um, but again, the number of books that's appeared about this has increased. There's even been a 24-part television series called Hunting Hitler that uh, has persistently showed uh, the, 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 uh, the, the reporters who front it uh, going around saying, well, Hitler could have been here, he could have been there, this could have happened. Nothing concrete at all. Slick, high-quality production, uh, and that's, it, that's had quite big audiences. Um, could you talk a bit more about these sort of communities of alternative knowledge, as you call them? What, what is it like for you to approach them in your work or try to sort of deconstruct this alternative knowledge? Yeah, yeah. well, it, well, deconstructing the knowledge, I mean, proving they're wrong, is not actually very difficult. Um, but they're interesting kind of in, the, in themselves. We, our project had, uh, through an arrangement with uh, the politics department at Cambridge and uh, and uh, uh, with um, uh, YouGov, the opinion poll, pollsters. So we were able to commission opinion polls 
uh, about conspiracy theories uh, using uh, their methods and uh, going across a number of different countries. And we found, uh, one of the things we found, which was confirmed by some of the other literature, is that people who feel they're marginalized, uh, but they have no influence, uh, they're not part of the mainstream, are more liable to believe in conspiracy theories. So we found, for example, before the uh, Brexit election, uh, we found that um, members and supporters and voters of UKIP, you know, the Kingdom Independence Party, which is uh, a fringe, though very influential organization, were much more likely to believe in conspiracy theories than members of the Labour or Conservative Party, for example. Uh, we also found that um, people are, uh, who believe in one conspiracy theory uh, quite often believe in another. And we even found some people who believed both that Princess Diana uh, was uh, killed on the orders of Prince Philip, uh, I've said no evidence at all, of course, uh, and that she's still alive. And apparently they believed the, the same two things without any problem. What does that, I guess, say about the society we live in, the post-truth society? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think it says is that we're a society where, uh, particularly on the internet, all opinions are equal. Um, a society in which evidence has a lower status than it, than it used to have, and you can see that in, for example, President Trump's uh, daily briefings. Um, a society in which... Uh, uh, which it's, it's, I think, possible for someone like Michael Gove to say a few years ago that we've had enough of experts. Uh, to be fair to him, he went on to say with acronyms uh, like the CBI, which is an extraordinary thing for a Federation of British Industry, an extraordinary thing for the uh, conservative politicians to say. But, so uh, opinion, feeling, identity politics, all of these things have become more important, I think. And you can see that in the way that conspiracy theories and communities of alternative knowledge operate. You, you said that sort of it's a society in which, in which evidence has has a lower status. How does that sort of affect your work as a historian? Well, it, particularly dealing with Hitler and the Nazis, I'm, I'm confronted, as we all are, with a, an absolute flood of uh, fantasy. Uh, um, uh, writings and broadcasts uh, about about them. They have this unique status, I think. Hitler, in a secularized society, has replaced Satan as the emblem of evil. Although, of course, there's a small number of people, such as Holocaust deniers, who, uh, who don't seem to think that he was evil, but the majority of us do. Um, and it, it's affected me in a number of ways. I mean, I, you know, I don't think you should spend a lot of time... Uh, you know, on on the the on the internet, refuting people who believe that that Hitler was still alive until a few years ago, um, but I it, it does mean that I that um, uh, the general public, I think, are exposed to a lot more lies, to put it brutally, uh, about Hitler and and the Nazis, and that affects the media as well. So, a few years ago, uh, I was asked to take part in a. a program, a TV program, about Unity Mitford. Now, she was uh, one of the Mitford sisters in the 1930s, uh, famously sort of society beauties, one of whom uh, became a Duchess of Devonshire, one of whom married Oswald Mosley, the fascist leader. And Unity Mitford was herself a fascist and frequently went to Germany and uh, became uh, a, part, uh, a part of Hitler's kind of entourage, uh, was frequently uh, visited him uh, at social events and so on. Um, the main effect of this was uh, to help convince Hitler that the English upper classes were not going to launch, were not going to object if he started a war, that they were all arch appeasers, uh, so it rather misled him. Uh, and so the program was going okay. And then uh, what happened to Unity Mitford was that on the outbreak of war, since her project of bringing Germany and Britain together uh, was obviously uh, failed, she shot herself. But she didn't succeed in killing herself, so she was shipped back to Britain, where she sort of lingered on for a time. Now, uh, the BBC, uh, no, sorry, it wasn't the BBC. I can't remember who made the programme. But they, they, the producers discovered an old lady who said that she'd known somebody in a nursing home 
and the south coast of England, uh, who has said, oh, no, no, Unity Mitford was having Hitler's baby. Well, the result of that was I was bumped off the program and I didn't get to do my kind of deflating bit. And uh, they, the program then became, uh, did, did Unity Mitford have Hitler's baby? Uh, and only at the very end did they find someone whose mother had been in the nursing home and said, absolutely no, no way, it, it just did not happen. She was there because she was severely injured, not because she was having a baby. So um, the, the media are very susceptible to that kind of sensationalism. With that, I sort of want to bring the conversation back into where we started, which is the current moment. How would you say that conspiracy and democracy sort of plays into where we are now with the pandemic or with this sort of new brand of authoritarianism? Or Yeah, well, all, all uh, great epidemics generate conspiracy theories. I've already mentioned 1349 in Rhineland, a conspiracy theory about uh, alleging quite falsely, of course, that the Jews are poisoning the wells, leading to horrific massacres. If you look at cholera, which arrived in Britain in the beginning of the 1830s, uh, there were riots against the doctors because uh, just before that had been the infamous murders in Edinburgh of Burke and Hare, two villains who were killing people in order to sell their bodies to the anatomy schools. And so Birking, as it was known, uh, became a focus of the cholera epidemic. People were dying of this brand new, mysterious and badly understood disease. And there were popular riots aiming, uh, aimed at the doctors saying that they, they were doing exactly the same thing. They were killing people off to use them for anatomical demonstrations. You can go to 1892 in Saratov and, and other towns on the Volga uh, in a major cholera epidemic. Uh, with a largely illiterate population where, again, doctors were attacked because it was thought people were were dying from this this unknown uh, and deadly disease because the doctors were being told by the Tsarist regime to kill them off to reduce the burden of poor relief. So um, uh, conspiracy theories, I think, are very common. And now, today, of course, we have the uh, 5G, fifth generation, iPhone um, and and other uh, smartphone uh, uh, infrastructure. You've got masts are being attacked. Over 30 have been attacked and destroyed or damaged in this country because it's been alleged by conspiracy theorists that they spread the coronavirus and that's the real cause. So um, I think we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, it's a matter, uh, uh, rather boringly, I suppose I should say, uh, for, for education. We need to educate people. And there's evidence of this in the 19th century, uh, because with the growth of literacy, the growth of education, the increasing prestige of medical science, as it discovered the causes of disease, um, and uh, that uh, conspiracy theory inspired riots, against the medical profession became less common. It happens in Russia in 1892, because you've got a largely literate population. But it doesn't happen in Germany, in Hamburg, uh, which is what I wrote my book about all those years ago, uh, because the, the, the uh, population are literate, they're educated, and they believe in science, because the Social Democrats, who were the, 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 the lead party amongst the working class, believe very strong in, strongly in science, and so they listen to the medical scientists. They believed in science, part of anything else, because they believed that Marx, Marxism was the science of society and would lead them to victory in the end. Turning a bit to talk more about the book that's coming yeah. out of the Conspiracy and Democracy Project, oh, yeah. um, as you mentioned, The Hitler Conspiracies, it's titled. Could you talk a bit, a bit more about that and sort of um, what you're trying to argue with it? Yeah, this is only one of a whole range of books and articles coming out of the project. As I mentioned, the, the enormous variety of topics that we're, we're looking at. Um, but uh, I was, I've been very struck by the spread of conspiracy theories about Hitler and the Nazis. So I decided to focus on this for my contribution to the project, apart from being in, in charge of it. And uh, it's, it's got five chapters. Um, and it, it, it's uh, the first one is about the protocols of the elders of Zion. Now, this is a forgery which was exposed 
1921 by the Times correspondent in Istanbul. It's part Russian, part French. It's plagiarized. It purports to be a world, uh, 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 a, a project of the Jews to, to conquer the world um, through destroying legitimacy, destroying Christianity, um, and, and generally subverting the old order. Uh, and uh, this is said to have been in the um, words, the title of the book by Norman Cohn some years ago now, a warrant for genocide to have influenced Hitler and inspired Hitler to um, commit the Holocaust. So that's the first chapter. So I look, I look closely at that and how it came to being, and uh, I really query its, its, its influence. It's a kind of generic uh, conspiracy theory book. What it really is, is uh, a, a purports to be a proof, in sort of inverted commas, of um, this, the Jewish racial, racially determined instinct to be subversive and destructive. It's a racist, a racist tract, or it, it confirms anti-Semitic racists in what they already know. If you actually read it, it is a pathetic jumble of bizarre uh, allegations, which really I don't think can, on its own, have influenced people. It's the fact that it purports to be proof of Jewish evil, as it were, that convinces anti-Semites or they're used by anti-Semites as uh, as a sort of proof, and that's why it's constantly being translated and reproduced. And then the second chapter is uh, about the stab in the back. It's the idea that the Germany lost the war, not because it was defeated in 1918, lost the First World War, uh, uh, 1918, uh, by uh, superior allied military strength and resources, but because the army was stabbed in the back by the uh, home front. And in a more specific version of this, stabbed in the back by socialists who wanted to destroy the Kaiser's Germany and put up a democracy. It's a right-wing nationalist um, conspiracy theory. Or in the most extreme version, that it was Jews who did this, uh, Jews working through the socialist and communist movements. Uh, now, there's no proof in this at all, because the key thing is, of course, that the German armies were defeated uh, before, well before the revolution broke out in 1918, in November, November the 9th, 1918. Uh, the, the war was lost militarily at least a month before that. And Germany's allies collapsed. Bulgaria, Austria-Hungary, they left Germany on their own. So uh, there's no truth in this, but it was a convenient kind of excuse by the military in Germany to shift the blame from themselves. The interesting thing about that is that although I think it had some uh, effect in weakening legitimacy, the legitimacy of the Roman Republic, you know, the Nazis didn't really didn't really use it very much. Uh, they wanted to actually blame the Kaiser and his government for the, their weakness of will, uh, their lack of commitment as they saw it, because Hitler and the Nazis believed that wars were won or lost by the strength of will, hence their famous propaganda film, Triumph of the Will. Um, so uh, it's a slightly more specific conspiracy theory, but still fairly general level. And then I look at the Reichstag fire, which I've already talked about. Uh, and then I go on to the flight of Rudolf Hess, and then finally Hitler's escape from the bunker. And then that's wrapped up in, in some general considerations about uh, conspiracy theories and how they work. Uh, and one interesting thing that's come through from that is that uh, the um, that Hitler wasn't nearly as much of a conspiracy theorist. Uh, he was a racist. He believed that the Jews were somehow all subversive, but there wasn't a specific conspiracy theory. Um, Goebbels' diaries are interesting here. He says that you can't really use the protocols of Elder Zion as a, uh, you're constantly being told by staff that you can't use them, they're not fit for, uh, for, for use in propaganda, and on the whole he doesn't use them. Um, and uh, uh, Hitler was very different from Stalin. Stalin saw or manufactured imaginary conspiracies everywhere. All of the great show trials of the 30s were about conspiracies that Stalin alleged 
his former comrades had been uh, hatching against him. And Hitler wasn't like that. He, I think, needed to be seen as supreme, supremely um, uh, knowledgeable and, and uh, supremely confident. He kept on his uh, ministers and his underlings, even if they were completely incompetent, like Robert Ly, um, because uh, he didn't want to be seen to been misled by them or have poor judgment. And in any case, of course, Stalin emerged out of a generation of second rank Soviet leaders after Lenin, whereas Hitler had emerged and his uh, alone and his uh, underlings like Goebbels, Goering, uh, uh, Himmler and so on, uh, had all grown up already subservient to him. So there's a difference there. Uh, and when Hitler was confronted with an actual conspiracy, the bomb plots to blow him up in 1944, uh, he tried to dismiss it as a tiny little clique of disgruntled officers, only then to realise it was much more wide-ranging. Uh, and then I say a few things, things about the, um, the way conspiracy theories work. So the way they deal with evidence is very interesting. The key documents have always gone missing, or they've been deliberately suppressed. They're languishing in an archive under lock and key. They've been destroyed. The key witnesses to a conspiracy uh, have all mysteriously disappeared um, or are lying. Uh, there are ways in which conspiracy theories deal with real evidence by dismissing it and trying to write it off. They're remarkably similar from one theory to another. With that, I want to ask you a bit more about your uh, research process. How did that work for this book? Well, uh, it's difficult to generalize about the project. We had anthropologists, political theorists, internet engineers, um, historians of ideas. Uh, so they all use very different methods. Um, the way I worked with this particular project was really very simple. I just read the conspiracy theories and then I compared them to the evidence and what we know. Now that's the research process. Um, it, this is one of the areas in which, uh, with a few exceptions, everything has been published. We have all the evidence for, for example, the um, uh, the flight of Rudolf Hess, for example. Uh, the, the, the evidence for Hitler's death in the bunker is overwhelming. And so that raises the interesting question of, as I said, of how conspiracy theories try to get around this awkward fact, how they deal with it, the evidence. I'm really interested in this blame shifting. Could you talk a bit more about that and how that works? Well, I mean, what I can say, particularly Ludendorff carrying on when he knew, you know, this reckless spring offensive in 1918, just because he could use a lot of troops that had been brought over from the Eastern Front after the collapse of Russia. Um, but he, uh, and, and it was very convenient for him. And similarly, um, uh, but, but that's not a, that, that's the way in which political, which uh, conspiracy theories can be instrumentalized by uh, politicians. Um, if you if you have an economic crisis, uh, then some politicians might shift the blame onto an alleged conspiracy. For example, that's a big one of the major origins of anti-Semitism. So in eighteen seventy-three, there's an economic crisis in Germany, and you find politicians emerging. They say, "No, I know you peasants and you uh, small workshops. You've been working uh, very very hard, and you're still going bankrupt." Uh, and the reason is, it's the Jews, they're, they're exploiting you, the Jewish banks and this kind of thing. So it can be used, it can be instrumentalised in that way. So you mentioned sort of Stalin's affinity for conspiracy theories, um, which is quite in contrast to, to Hitler. Um, could you talk a bit more about that? You know, Stalin needed to get rid of his, uh, what he saw as his potential rivals in the, in the hierarchy. Uh, but he'd also grown up at a time, I mean, he's in his youth, where the Tsarist secret police were heavily infiltrating the Bolshevik movement. The treasurer of the Bolshevik party, Malinovsky, before the First World War, was actually a Tsarist police agent. Uh, and so suspicion uh, and imagining conspiracies is sort of natural to Stalin because of that background. Uh, that he had, and, and whereas Hitler had not been involved in politics at all before the First World War, completely obscure, he came to them uh, really in 1919 as a result of the 
defeated Germany in the war. So I think they are very they are very different. Um, and and uh, as as I said, uh, Hitler did not manufacture conspiracies. He didn't really need to. He had overwhelming support within the uh, Nazi Party hierarchy. All of his underlings really owed him everything, and that's not true of Stalin. How can we sort of can we look at Stalin at all as an example of, of a leader who buys into conspiracy theories and what what happens when we have that kind of leader? Yes, it's very dangerous. I mean, because he, he you know, people tended to believe him, of course, and it was widely believed uh, that the show trials exposed real plots and conspiracies against Stalin. And despite the fact that the evidence now, when we look at it, it seems absolutely ludicrous, and absurd to think that Bukharin and other leading leading communists have been plotting against the Communist Party since before the First World War. But people believed this, um, and he was able to get rid of his, his potential rivals, and he was able to achieve supreme dictatorial power, which is not, of course, something intended at all by the communist movement in its theory of politics. Now, Hitler didn't need to do this. Uh, he already had supreme dictatorial power. He was the leader of the Fuhrer. Stalin emerged as the general secretary of the party and had to forge his own uh, dictatorship. I want to now sort of turn and talk more about your work before you came to this topic of conspiracies. You've written the seminal books on the Third Reich, but it's been a number of, of years since then. How is, um, have, has your approach to, to this topic sort of changed at all in, in the last few years? Well, I turned, um, I mean, I'm not one of those historians who spends his entire, her entire life studying Nazi Germany. I can't imagine how anyone can stand it, but some people do. Uh, so I turned from that when I finished the three books on Nazi Germany to the 19th century. And I've been teaching 19th century Europe for many years. So I decided it was time to sum up everything. Uh, I wrote the Penguin History of 19th century Europe, 1815 to 1914. So that took me away from Nazi Germany. And then after that, through a series of chances where I got to write the biography, the first biography of Eric Hobsbawm, the historian, um, and having exclusive access to his private papers after he died and so on. So that took me away again, much more into sort of 20th century British history, really. Um, and I've always had an interest in historiography, so that kind of meshed with that. Uh, and um, so it's been a while since I engaged with uh, the history of uh, Nazi Germany. But now uh, I'm coming back to it. Uh, and of course, it's, uh, it, it's very interesting to see how things have, have changed. Uh, there's more of an em interest, I think, and more of an emphasis on personalities. Uh, I think more Hitler's being uh, accorded as it were, a, a greater role. When I, when I came into the whole question of Nazi Germany, uh, what was dominant was a kind of social historical approach uh, in which Hitler's role had been rather minimized and uh, he was portrayed as a rather lazy uh, leader who was not engaged in the detail and minutiae of, uh, of politics and government. Uh, you worked towards the Fuhrer in the famous phrase, you, if you were an official, you imagined what uh, Hitler would want, and then you did it. But now I think he's seen as more interventionist, uh, and and as more, uh, in a way, more 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 powerful uh, than uh, than than used to be the case. So that's one change. And then another change has been the uh, one of which I'm much less inclined to uh, to accept. Though it's a very interesting idea, uh, is that the mass of Germans were supportive of Hitler pretty well all the way through from 1933 onwards. Uh, uh, some historians have even said that uh, Hitler did not need to establish his dictatorship by force. Well, that's patently absolutely wrong. There was a lot of opposition uh, in 1933. By 1938-9, however, historians have been arguing now that Hitler created a genuine people's community, the Volksgemeinschaft, uh, whereas Previously, historians have thought that's just a propaganda slogan. So 
now there have been uh, serious books arguing with a good deal of evidence that the great mass of Germans uh, supported and even involved themselves in uh, anti-Semitic uh, outrages. So I'm trying to get to grips with that uh, in the book I'm about to start writing, um, which is called Hitler's People. Uh, that seems to be an important, uh, important debate that I really want to go back to. So you mentioned sort of these these two changes. The I guess in the historiography of Hitler becoming more interventionist, and also of of this idea of popular support from the beginning. Do you think that says anything about maybe the current atmosphere of authoritarianism that we're living in? Should that or has that affected our view of of Hitler? No, I don't. I don't really think it it, it has. I mean, that trend comes from uh, I think a German, mostly German historians. Uh, or there's some Americans. Uh, the, the problem with arguing that, um, I, I mean, th- all of these theories involve um, questions of guilt and responsibility. Uh, so if you're arguing that Hitler controlled everything, you're letting the German people off the hook, as it were. Uh, if you're arguing that this is an authoritarian dictatorship that didn't allow any, any kind of resistance, that's the same uh, kind of thing. You're saying people had no... Uh, no a, a choice but to do what they what they did. So there's been trend. There's partly been also been driven by a kind of late wave of um, uh, of war crimes trials and restitution. The whole issue of restitution of uh, and compensation, which has emerged since the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, that has led to a kind of judicialization of the language in which uh, the Nazi period is discussed. So we now have perpetrators, bystanders and, and victims. And uh, there's been a lot of research on perpetrators. Uh, and that makes me slightly uneasy because in essence, that's a very, very oversimple way of looking at how Germans reacted to the uh, to, to, to Nazi Germany and its supporting crimes. So I'm interested in exploring that those kinds of problems. Could you talk a bit more then about bystanders and and victims? What are the kind of stories that haven't been looked into but probably should? Um, well, uh, there's also uh, it's it's a question of um, sometimes you get perpetrators who uh, turn against the regime or people who supported it who then dissented from it in some ways. Uh, you get the question of are so-called bystanders, ordinary Germans who only just get on with their lives. Um, but do they really get on with their lives? I mean, do they know how much do they know about the mass murder of the Jews, for example, about war, war atrocities and that sort of thing? So uh, I, I think the psychology of ordinary Germans and also of the leadership, why did people become Nazis? Why did they work for the regime? Why did they turn against it? Why did they support it? Those are the questions I'm, I'm really interested in. I still haven't read all the literature. I've got a lot of lot of reading, a lot of work to do. I'm curious about what what kind of literature is there on this. I I'm guessing a lot of the evidence has written, been written by by the perpetrators. But how do you plan to go about that issue? Well, it's a very bureaucratic regime, so there's a lot of a lot of evidence, um, a huge amount of documentation. Uh, so, I mean, currently I'm reading Magnus Breschkin's um, fascinating biography of, of Albert Speer. And Albert Speer uh, was a munitions minister, he started as an architect. He uh, got off with 20 years at Nuremberg because he argued he was an unpolitical technocrat. Uh, and he was, as he said, seduced by the possibilities of technology in the modern age. Uh, and Breschkin really, uh, and Speer wrote his own memoirs with some help from journalists, but uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating and hugely influential book called Inside the Third Reich, brilliantly written and put together. And that has shaped our well, view of Speer. But Breskin shows it's all lies, starting with his birth, actually. He tells, tells porcupines about his, how his, about his birth, you know, in a thunderstorm, I don't think. Uh, and it goes on and how he misrepresented was everything and was, in fact, a committed, uh, committed Nazi from the start. For example, Speer says that he joined the party because he went to a party rally before Hitler took power when he was completely bowled over by Hitler's uh, speech, uh, mesmerized, just converted like uh, like a religious experience. 
Well, in fact, Raskin's found that he belonged to the Nazi party well before that. He's already committed. So things like that. How someone can fashion their post-war reputation. Uh, it's a fascinating subject. That's really interesting. What kinds of other examples are there of fashioning fashioning one's reputation in, in, in the context of Nazi Germany? Well, what's interesting is that we, we know a lot. I mean, there's been a shift towards biography in, in, in Germany. Uh, for a long time, German historians avoided biography because it seemed to be too much of the great man of theory of history, which then, of course, fed into Nazism. So they stood clear of it and wrote, wrote a much broader kind of social history. Uh, but now it's become more uh, more respectable. Um, and so there have been major biographies of pretty well all the, all the big names in Nazi Germany. And of course, they're transforming our knowledge of these people. Uh, absolutely. And then there are a lot of memoirs and diaries have been made available. Great, great one, of course, is uh, Victor Klemperer, the Jewish professor who survived all the way through Nazi Germany and wrote a fantastic uh, diary of his experiences. Um, there's also a German diary archive in a town called Emmendingen, where you can go and look at lots of ordinary diaries kept during the war and beforehand. So there's a lot, there's massively more evidence now. I want to wrap up by asking you about, I know you get asked a lot about the president of Nazi Germany and how is this new um, trend in historiography? Um, what, what can it tell us about today? Um, well, uh, I, I, let me start by saying that's not the point. Of course, the point is to tell us about the past. Uh, and I think historians should be very wary of instrumentalizing um, history for present day purposes or for drawing facile and usually misleading parallels. So I'm always being asked, is Trump a Nazi? Is Trump a dictator? Is Trump Hitler kind of thing? Well, there are lots of historical specificities about Nazism. It's, it's a product of the First World War. Um, it's a product of an era of, in which uh, politics in Germany and Italy and other countries has become massively militarized. I don't see Donald Trump putting 200,000 stormtroopers in uniforms armed with clubs onto the streets of Washington, D.C. or, or, um, or New York. Uh, so there are big differences, I think. You can see faint echoes, for example, in the way in his rhetoric and his nationalist rhetoric of America first. Uh, and uh, I mean, I don't think Hitler used the phrase Germany first, but there was a similar kind of nationalist populism. This uh, this argument that the existing institutions of politics uh, were not fit for purpose, didn't represent the per the people, and that he, the leader, whether it's Trump or Hitler, uh, they have a direct line to the people and they know what they want. There's a lot of sort of echoes, um, but uh, history never repeats itself, and we should be very clear that it doesn't. That actually leads me to one more question. Um, how is this? How is this new historiography, if if at all, is it? Is there a sort of conscious attempt to point out that history never repeats itself? Um, uh, I, I think what I've noticed in the the new work that's been done on Nazi Germany in the last ten or fifteen years uh, is a growing concern about the prospects of democracy and a belief that we can learn something at least from the experience of, of the past and that we have to be truthful uh, as far as we can uh, in, in our writings about, about history. Um, well, thank you so much. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of On History, a podcast from the Oxford University History Society. Remember to come back next week with Linda Porter, Independent Historian, and author of several books on early modern British history.